Are you pregnant or a new parent looking to ensure a better postpartum experience? Or are you a birth worker looking to improve your postpartum care skills? Check out Thriving After Birth, an online self-paced course by me, midwife and educator Tanya Tringali. It's 10 and a half hours of video content featuring experts in lactation, mental health, pelvic floor health, pediatric sleep issues. You also get worksheets and a workbook, as well as options to have a one-on-one session with me. Sign up at motherwitmaternity.com slash thriving, and let's improve postpartum care together. Welcome to episode two of season three of the Mother Wit podcast. Um, my guest today is Rebecca Feldman. She is a certified nurse midwife and a psychiatric nurse practitioner. She's the founder and director of Brooklyn Parent Support. Uh, she specializes in medication management for pregnancy and lactation, and she is super passionate about group support. So we're definitely going to talk about that in the episode. Um, I'm going to leave it at that. I have COVID as I'm recording this intro. Uh, And so I don't feel like talking anymore. And Rebecca does a really good job introducing herself here in a moment. So without further ado, enjoy the episode. Oh, and a gentle reminder that nothing we discuss on this show should ever be considered medical advice. Please speak to your local provider about anything that comes up in this show that resonates with you and your needs and your health care. Well, hi, Rebecca. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited. I'm really excited to have you too, because you're career, I've had the pleasure of watching it shift and change and grow. And it has been super fascinating to me. And even more so as I started doing the work that I'm doing, because everybody's heard me say this a million times, I had no idea the depths that I would go in terms of working with people in relation to their mental health until I was in it. Um, And I love it. But it's also the case that I am only a midwife. I don't have these extra tools that you have um, added to your tool bag. And so I think it is uh, a little late, actually, for me to have you on the show. I should have had you on two seasons ago, but here I am happy to have you now. Um, And sometimes on the show, I think we've dived in really deep on just the real issues that people are out there having, but we haven't actually provided a really solid backbone and some definitions and giving people some solid tools. And so even though it's a little late, it's never too late. And I would love to have you give us all a bit of a primer. How do you feel about that? Sounds good. Great. Well, before we get started, I think you should tell everybody who you are, share whatever personal and professional details you feel comfortable sharing. Okay, great. Um, I'm Rebecca Feldman, and I am a nurse midwife and psychiatric nurse practitioner. And uh, most of my career was in labor and delivery as a labor and delivery nurse and midwife. And um, I just, through that time, I loved working with mental health and, and 
prevention of uh, more serious mental health conditions was always something I was really interested in. And so I, so I worked as a midwife for nine years um, and I got more and more interested in the mental health part. And I didn't want to go back to school because I actually was really happy with my job as a hospital midwife. Um, but I became increasingly frustrated with the lack of services that I could find for the people that I was working with. Um, and so in particular around medication in pregnancy and lactation, I just wasn't finding, um, and there, there's not enough people to do the work. And so a lot of times my clients were seeing people who weren't specialized and they were getting um, very often told to come off medication and then they would feel worse and they would have much more challenging pregnancy and afterward. So I went back to school and became a psychiatric nurse practitioner. And um, I really wanted to work in psychotherapy as well, which we did receive training in psychotherapy, but I went to a three-year psychotherapy program as well. Um, and I'm very passionate about group work. So I use my psychotherapy background most often with group work. So I have a practice now in Brooklyn um, that's called Brooklyn Parent Support. And we're a group of five nurse practitioners now. Two of us are midwives as well as nurse practitioners. And we have one social worker working with us and we have a bunch of groups. Um, so we'll talk more about group support for pregnancy and postpartum, um, but that's just a little bit about me. Oh, and I'm a mom of two and stepmom of one and they're all boys and it's really interesting um living with all boys and working with mostly women but not only women but um there are two of them going into high school and then my youngest is just finished elementary school wow you got a lot going on uh-huh <laughs> That's a that's a busy life. <laughs> uh, it is. True. I met you at Brookdale. Yeah, yeah, and I liked you immediately, wow. and it was so great to work with you. Yeah, and I mean, working there because I've worked in two um, hospitals in Brooklyn that were really um, underserved hospitals, and those they really stoked my passion for working in mental health. Both of those hospitals. It, at Brookdale, we saw a lot of severe persistent mental illness in pregnancy. Um, and the good news is that there can be great outcomes for people who live with those illnesses. But unfortunately, at that time, we really weren't seeing that. Yeah. Yeah, that that was a long time ago, too. I mean, a lot has changed and evolved yes. in this yeah, time frame. Yeah, we know so much more now. That was 2008, I think, when we were there. Yeah. Something so, like that. Yeah. yeah. We know more now. And um, yeah, th things are changing slowly, but they are. Yeah. And just for our listeners sake, I don't have the experience from this place we're talking about Brookdale that Rebecca has because I was actually only there for six months. Um, it's a funny, not funny, haha, but funny story that um, they were doing a massive layoff at this hospital and they laid off 300 people in one day. And I was one of them because basically what they did, their strategy was to lay off the newest people in every department. So I was laid off six weeks after starting there. So I have very, very brief memories of Brookdale. So as Rebecca's recalling that, I just uh, wow. wanted to oh. let everybody know that I don't 
have that context she has about the severe mental illness from yeah. this workplace. Wow. I didn't realize it was only six weeks because I remember. <laughs> <you said> <laughs> It was only six weeks. It's true. It's it's a wild story. I was a little traumatized by that moment of my life. <laughs> you don't think you're going to start a new job and have that happen. So anywho, okay, now that we've figured out our history together, um, I am going to ask Rebecca to dive in. I want to give everyone a chance to really take in Rebecca's perspective on the three most common things I think everyone should know. We could go on forever and go into the things that are less common, but I don't think that's a good use of our time in this episode. So first, we're going to talk about baby blues, and then we can kind of segue into postpartum depression because I think there's a lot of confusion for people there, and we can kind of unpack people's lived experiences of you know, where the confusion lies in those two things. And then we can take postpartum anxiety kind of separate from that. Um, so I'll turn it over to you. Tell okay. us what you think we need to know. And I, and, and just to frame this, I really want this to be helpful for both consumers of healthcare mm -hmm. and healthcare providers, because I think we have healthcare providers listening who come from all sorts of different backgrounds, all types of birth workers, and even people who don't do overt birth work, but sometimes interface with just women in general who have had babies. Um, and so I think everybody needs this information. Right. But the more that I do this work, the more like the pregnancy and postpartum piece kind of blurs together for mental health. Because, I mean, my favorite scenario is when people come to me, because I do mostly psychiatric evaluation and medication management. And I also do psychotherapy, but that's really the, the, the bread and butter. I was gonna say the meat and butter <laughs> of what I do. <laughs> the medication consultation and management for pregnancy and postpartum. Um, and then of course the group support. But when people come even prior to pregnancy, I feel, especially people who have had you know a history of depression, anxiety, bipolar, or whatever it is. Um, and then we can start making a plan even prior to pregnancy because one of the difficult things is when people start treatment in pregnancy, very often they have stopped medication to be pregnant and then they don't feel well. Um, this is a common you know, reason that people come to see me. Um, and then they've started the pregnancy not doing as well as they could. So optimizing the mental health prior to pregnancy is is really ideal and, and a challenge. Um, but that is the most preventative is when we can really optimize mental health through, through pregnancy. Um, and then we don't see as many of the postpartum mood disorders as we're going to talk about now. Um, but starting with the baby blues, um, that is um, a universal scenario where most of us after having a baby it's usually around 80 percent but probably more like everybody um has the emotional shift following the birth of a baby um and it can look very many different ways but it often corresponds with like around the time that the milk comes in because there is such a profound shift in hormones at that time um and um and also it is a time where the wall of sleep deprivation, and we'll talk about sleep throughout this podcast, but um, the wall of sleep deprivation kind of hits people hard and um, corresponding with the changes in progesterone. 
Um, and just getting used to being responsible for a human being 24 seven, sometimes for the first time. Um, and then obviously like all the physical changes as well. So most people feel intense feelings, maybe crying more easily or crying more often. But with when we consider it baby blues, it's the overall feeling is a feeling of contentment or even joy, um, like interest in the baby, liking the baby, not always in love with the baby, because that's something that I talk about a lot is that like we don't always fall in love the moment the baby comes. And it's nice if it happens, but not a requirement for bonding. Because sometimes, you know, they uh, we've gone through a lot. They look pretty weird at first and it just takes time. <laughs> um, <laughs> you mean you mean, Rebecca, not all babies are perfectly adorable and cute the second they come out? <laughs> <laughs> You know, some babies look like little old men and some babies look like little aliens and they eventually turn into adorable babies, but it doesn't happen right away. And also we might fall in love with those babies and also we might not. Like the really yeah. cute ones we might not fall in love with right away. I think that's one of the most interesting things I face is this, the the shame someone feels if they aren't talked to in advance about the fact that they may not fall in love instantly. Yes. And it's amazing what just talking to someone in advance of the birth about that does to prevent this horrible feeling, right? Yes, absolutely. I mean, my personal experience with that was my second, my first one, and they know this story, so it's okay if they listen to this podcast. <laughs> my first son was very, very cute immediately, like just so cute. And I, and I had such a long labor, but when I, I looked at him, I just thought it's all worth it. I just love, love you so much. My second one, it was just, the labor was hard in a different way. And it, it was just everything, it was very challenging. And he just didn't look very cute. And he looked like <laughs> a little wrinkly, kind of skinny, skinny wise creature. Um, and I, I did not fall in love immediately, which I think also is sometimes more common after the first baby, but not always, but because you've already gone through that transition of like, I'm a mom, if that's what you wanted, um, like it's different. The second time, you know, more about what is about to happen, <laughs> what, how much yeah, life changes. Um, yeah. And that can almost be more scary, right? Because you, if you don't know what's coming your way, you have nothing to be afraid of. And mm -hmm. if you know the challenges that are coming, you can sort of get ahead of yourself almost, right? And then sometimes second babies can be easier. And sometimes that's because our temperament is different because we trust ourselves. And there's just all these different variations that can unfold. Yeah, it's true. My second one was he, he was easier. Um, now he, he uses they, them pronouns. But at that time when he was born, we called him, them he. But um, yeah he was a super easy baby. Um, but I was thinking like, how do you do this with two? Like even in, I, there was a cesarean birth, even in the operating room, I was thinking like, wow, I've got to go home and recover with a toddler too. But with yeah. the, going back to the baby blues, the feeling like you might have all of some, you know, similar feelings or different feelings than what I was having. Um, but overall there's this contentment or even a hopeful feeling and um, people can, if, if it's the baby blues, um, typically like sleep is possible. Um, like if you're very tired, you can fall asleep. Appetite is there. 
Um, and but the crying can be for sure like more easy, uh, more easy to cry and just like an overwhelmed feeling. And it will pass. And that if that those are all the case, that's the case. The sleeping is happening, you know, when you can. Um, appetite is there, no thoughts of, you know, wanting to die or escape that typically passes as the hormones kind of start to settle and um, hopefully some sleep and, and care from other supporting family members. Um, but we, I mean, I think I remember learn, I do remember learning that, you know, within the first two weeks, it's just the baby blues, but that's really not true because. I wanted to ask you about that. You have found this to be factually untrue. Yeah, because I mean, some people uh, will feel like profound anxiety or a trauma response or very depressed, even very quickly after the baby's born. So I wouldn't say, um, okay, you're, you know, so anxious that you can't sleep, but it's only been a week, you know, because you want to, if somebody is really struggling and doesn't have that kind of overall overarching feeling of contentment or joy, um, especially, you know, sometimes people will feel even um, suicidal quickly at, soon after birth. And for some people that's related to hormonal changes. Mm -hmm. But would you still call that baby blues? No, no. You would call that postpartum psychosis? N no. Or not? I mean, um, well, so if somebody is feeling very depressed um, following the birth of the baby and it's still within two weeks, but they mm -hmm. have feelings of hopelessness or wanting to die, um, not feeling connected with the baby, um, and then usually like the diff real insomnia and um, un unable to eat then I would call that postpartum depression, even if it's in if mm -hmm. within, you know, the within the week, especially if there's suicidal thoughts. But postpartum psychosis is very different, though uh, does happen usually within the first two weeks, but can happen outside of that time. But um, mm -hmm. postpartum psychosis usually is related, not always, but about half the time or a little bit more related to untreated bipolar disorder, um, uh -huh. which is not uncommon. Um, it sometimes is the very first episode of a bipolar manic episode can sometimes mm -hmm. happen in the postpartum time. And that's not uncommon because um, the age that bipolar disorder usually begins is like mid early 20s to mid 20s. So a, no, a very common time for someone to be having their first baby. And um, and I know we said we were going to talk about baby blues, anxiety, and depression, but I'm glad we got okay. into this too. Because, um, because I think it's really important that we talk about postpartum psychosis um, more because it's, it is rare, but we talk about other rare things more than we talk about postpartum psychosis. And it can happen to anyone. It's about one in 1,000 births, um, which is uh, is rare. But as you know, we've been midwives for a long time, so we've certainly worked with a lot, you know, thousands of people. Um, and I work with postpartum psychosis pretty frequently now. Um, usually, people come to me 
after having had a psychotic episode and been in the hospital and then for continued care. That's, that's uh, not an uncommon referral for me. Um, but usually, so like I was saying that it could be the very first time someone has a postpartum manic episode. Um, but if someone knows that they have bipolar disorder, that's it's just so uh, important to prevent postpartum psychosis, which we actually can do by continuing treatment with medication through pregnancy. I was gonna say, I'm, I'm actually really glad that we kind of diverged and did these two things. This one thing that's kind of simple that everybody has up against this one thing that's really rare that hardly anyone has because we don't talk about it enough. You're absolutely right. And they overlap in that time frame, which is what I was trying to get at uh, initially, once you said suicidal, I kind of thought that's where you were going with it. But I'm glad that you then unpacked it even more than that so that we didn't drill down to an oversimplification, which was baby blues, postpartum psychosis. Those are the only things that can happen at the beginning. I, too, have been taught probably too many times that, oh, well, postpartum depression usually starts later. Right. And although that may be somewhat a true statement, we can't buy in so much that we don't see postpartum depression happening when it does happen sooner. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Which I think is what you're saying. Yes. Yeah. And the anxiety and depression for most people are very intertwined. Um, I mean, usually when I'm working with somebody, one is one is the dominant feeling, but usually there's both. And more common, so postpartum depression and anxiety, like the numbers, we don't know for sure. Um, and that's why now the umbrella term is usually perinatal mood and anxiety disorders. That includes bipolar disorder and PTSD and OCD. Um, and all of these things are usually, can be mixed in together, but anxiety I work with much more depression. I would agree that I see anxiety much more than depression. Also, I see depressive features, just as you've said, but I, the P at least the people who come to me, which is why I can't know for sure whether this is a trend of who seeks out my support or this is the way it is across the board. I think I see anxiety much more and yet people don't think that that's the case. Right. Right. Yeah. And um, I mean, it can certainly turn into depression because when you have the persistent anxious feelings and trouble with sleep and trouble with eating and, and trouble connecting with the baby because of so much worry, um, then it does lead to feeling depressed for most people because it's so hard to have that type of anxiety. But that and postpartum anxiety, which it is more common than postpartum depression, um, but we don't have like exact numbers, but we usually say, you know, one to five to one in seven uh, people have perinatal mood disorders during pregnancy or after pregnancy through the first year. And then during the pandemic, it's been much higher. Um, I mean, especially in the early times, I don't, I mean, there was very few people who weren't experiencing depression or anxiety after having a baby. Um, but with the anxiety postpartum, usually it starts when people come to me who are feeling profoundly anxious, they usually started to feel that in labor or in pregnancy or immediately after the baby is here. Um, and what we do in the hospital with sleep 
is um, makes it all worse <laughs> because you if one of the preventions for anxiety and depression is getting sleep and the hospital makes I mean it's it's very very hard to sleep in the hospital um, so if especially if someone had like a longer labor or an induction or a surgical birth and then the sleep is broken up not just by the baby but also by uh, you know everyone coming in and out and having a roommate and all of that um, the anxiety starts to build and one of the other risk factors for postpartum anxiety is um, NICU or the baby be you know separation from the baby um, it can be that's a very common start to feeling you know pretty anxious um, so but but also anxiety during pregnancy we should be paying more attention to um, because it has effects um, and people who treat their anxiety during pregnancy often have much less anxiety postpartum um, and what I mean with treatment it could be medication it could be therapy it can be both it can be groups. Um, so there's all different approaches and it depends on the person, you know, which combination of treatments is going to work. But one of the things with pregnancy anxiety and postpartum anxiety is this need to, um, to check on things, which of course is like a very normal parental maternal instinct is to check on the baby. But I mean, we, as midwives, we know, like we've worked with people who are just constantly checking on um, what's happening with the pregnancy. And, and then the way that we do prenatal care, of course, exacerbates that um, with like the checking of everything. <laughs> um, so one of the things I do working with people during pregnancy who have a history of anxiety is just working to minimize the checking because, uh, and the kick, kick counts too are just like a great yep. place for yep. people to put their anxiety so trying to minimize that if it's you know if it's possible um because when the baby's here then the checking can be you know even worse and very hard to, to sleep um so that's yep. one of the things that we work on through pregnancy absolutely um do you have any particular thoughts on how both for both providers and consumers again how we can do a better job differentiating between sort of a normal, healthy level of anxiety that everyone's going to pass through and when maybe it's a little excessive. Yeah, that's, um, I mean, it, it's, it is tricky, um, but there is, I mean, there is, anxiety serves a purpose and we all have anxiety. Um, there's no person that's never experienced anxiety. Um, and sometimes the anxiety is telling us that there is some type of a threat. But if it's like um, an all consuming kind of feeling that there's a general feeling of, of worry and concern um, and it's hard to enjoy, have, it's hard to have fun. I mean, that's usually what I ask people uh, to kind of gauge some of this is like, what do you do for fun? And so many people laugh and are like, uh, nothing, what do you mean? Like, what is fun? <laughs> but <that's, laughs> it's important. Um, yep. If, I mean, for me, like the sleep and the appetite are just like so helpful for me to understand like how pervasive the worry is. So 
I mean, most people have trouble sleeping during pregnancy, at, at least at some point. But I'll, I really find out about the quality of the sleep. Like, can you, are you waking up with like a racing heart or waking up with specific mm -hmm. worries or fears? Or are mm -hmm. you just waking up because you have to pee or because the baby is moving? Um, that kind of thing. Um, I mean, and then also like trauma is so intertwined with all of this too. So finding out like, is the fear because, is it related to some type of trauma? Um, is it like a flashback kind of feeling or, you know, from another pregnancy or from other medical experiences? And then there's specific types of therapy that can be really helpful for that. But lack of appetite, that's really important because sometimes mm -hmm. people are like, well, I mean, I can, especially because I know we'll, we'll get into medication some, um, people will tell me like, well, I can just make it through the pregnancy with the anxiety. Mm -hmm. Like I'll make it through and then I'll start my medication as soon as the baby's here. But it's not a benign thing to be anxious. It could be like, like if you're able to have fun and you're able to eat three meals a day and you can sort of sleep, you know, sleep okay at night. Um, that, that would be a, you know, a manageable level of anxiety, but if there's no appetite, you know, that means the stress hormones are really circulating in a way that isn't great for pregnancy. Yeah. And that th there was a therapist that I worked with who had a nice, concise way of saying this, and I don't remember exactly what it was. Maybe you do. Um, there's, oh, I know what it was. There's no such thing as no exposure. Yeah. It's just so simple. There's either exposure to stress, anxiety, the hormones that come with it, or there's exposure to medications. There's, but, but people put on blinders and they only think about the exposure to the medication. At least that's how it seems. And that's for both providers who are telling people to get off their meds and for clients that are afraid to be on meds uh, during pregnancy or during lactation. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it, it seems like there's a lot of discussion in perinatal psychiatry about like we're looking, we've been looking at the wrong things for decades because the medications, um, you know, we've studied SSRIs are some of the most studied medications in pregnancy um, and the safety profile is good. Um, but we have so much information about the risk of depression and anxiety during pregnancy and in those early postpartum months that, um, we, yeah, that's exactly right. We have to really take into account the risk of the mental health issues versus medication. And, um, and it's, it's, uh, it can be a really difficult switch in people's minds because most people do think, you know, I'll get through the pregnancy without my medication. Um, then yeah. we have to really reframe that as, you know, having yep. your, um, and also like, we don't want to, something I talk about a lot is, if you do take medication and we'll get into like what specific medications are we talking about but um a lot of people will say let me take it down to the absolute lowest and we want to people to be on the lowest effective dose so that they feel well and can sleep and eat and have fun um and feel you know somewhat in excited about the baby that's coming if if that's possible um and um it's, it's, if you're on too low of a dose of your medication, then you're exposing the pregnancy to both the illness as well as the medication. Um, and that's probably what your other speaker was talking about too. Yes, and another thought though, is that in a huge misconception, I think people fight to stay on the lowest dose because they're afraid of 
just more exposure, of course. But what they aren't thinking about is that the dose you're on doesn't mean that you are more sick than someone else. Right, right. Right, like we are all individuals and we all respond to different dosages, not to mention pregnancy is just wild on the metabolism. And so we just can't really know. And so I, I talk to everybody about not buying into this idea that if you need a dosage increase that you should be fighting and resisting. No, I think I can stay on this dose. And I see people trying to do that. Yeah. So yeah. that's another mission I end up oh, on. That's great. Yeah, I mean, it, it is because I do these genetic tests for psychiatric medications that we can uh, we have access to now. And we're still learning about it and not totally sure how um, important they are. But but I do learn from using them. And one of the things I've learned is that we just metabolize medications completely different depending on how our receptors are are made. And that's very individual. Um, and so, yeah, it, and it has, doesn't have to do with weight, it doesn't have to do with size, and it doesn't have to do with severity. Though with anxiety disorders and obsessive compulsive disorder, people do usually do better and feel better on the higher end of the doses, but that's kind of like a general rule. But I also, I, you know, I love to tell people that I've seen a lot of placentas and they're very big and I mean, they, you know, they usually weigh two to three pounds and they're nice, thick, meaty organ. Um, and that's what's filtering this medication through. And they're a very, very good filter. And the research on using medications in pregnancy for in all classes of medications, it's not dose dependent. Um, I mean, there's certain medications that dosing is really particular in pregnancy like lithium or lamotrigine. Um, but for the SSRIs, 75 milligrams of Zoloft could make could be um, much less effective than 100, and so that could make your pregnancy much happier and healthier, but really no change at all to what the exposure is to the fetus. So, and I usually tell people that more often than not, no, that's not. I, I usually have to go up on medications in pregnancy, not down. Um, and so, I mean, that's, I usually, especially if I'm seeing people even before pregnancy, that's something just to think about because of fluid volume and blood volume and, and all of that. And even just the stress of pregnancy itself. So it sounds like in an ideal world, right? I, I also spend, in addition to harping on issues about postpartum care, I obviously also harp on issues in preconception care. And it seems to me that one of our biggest shortcomings here is preconception care for people with an underlying mental illness prior to pregnancy. Absolutely. If we were working with them carefully and closely as they prepare for pregnancy, we might be able to prevent all of this coming on, coming off, starting, stopping, changing meds, yeah. and just keep everybody smooth throughout. Yeah. Now, that's different than someone who wasn't on any medication prior to pregnancy. Now, regardless of whether they maybe had an, had a disorder that wasn't being treated or it pops up new in pregnancy, let's say. I, I kind of want to see if you can give us a little bit of a framework for approaching the use of medications in someone who wasn't previously on anything, somebody who never took anything before, but we start to see the onset of mood disorders in pregnancy. And then maybe how does that change when it is somebody who already is on a medication? Okay, um, your questions are so good, Tanya. Um, so 
Yeah, I mean, I would, the vast majority of people that I work with did have some type of mental health history previous to working with me, but I mean, not always the case. And sometimes it's related to fertility. Um, I work with a lot of people who are going through IVF and it's obviously stressful, but there's also like the whole hormonal, uh, the intensity of adding the hormones and then just, you know, getting through each month. Um, so very, so I would say like that population more often does not have pre-existing mental health conditions, just of my, my group of patients. Um, but they often feel anxious from the fertility challenges, um, and the hormones, but then another scenario that's not uncommon is first trimester anxiety. Um, so sometimes I'll see people like usually a desired pregnancy, but not always. Um, but the, it, there's just this intense anxiety that can happen in the first trimester. And um, I think that, you know, typically if it's really intense, I do use medication. Um, but depending on the situation, I mean, if someone has not had therapy before, starting with psychotherapy and just learning some grounding techniques and mindfulness can make such a huge difference. So it just depends on what exactly is happening. Um, I mean, sometimes it's it's really just the sleep. We have to work on sleep. Um, and yeah, once somebody can sleep, the anxiety starts to improve. I love talking to somebody who understands the role of sleep as much as I now do. <laughs> it's, it is the dominant conversation I'm having with people for close to the whole first month postpartum generally, right? Because I feel like I can't even sort out in most cases. Sometimes it's blaringly yeah. obvious, right? But in other times, what we're doing is saying, I can't tell how much of this is overt anxiety unless we get you sleeping. So it becomes this dance between how do I get your team to give you just the right amount of help without undermining you? What, how do we position breastfeeding or whatever it is that you want out of that up against the fact that the truth is breastfeeding and preserving someone's mental health and sleep don't often go hand in hand. And so there's lots of compromises to be made there. So that's an ongoing daily conversation. Like this, this doesn't work in our current healthcare system, giving someone this degree of support to smooth them out. But I have smoothed so many people out just by harping on sleep. Right. Now, once or twice, I do think I have contributed to somebody's anxiety by harping on sleep, however. Uh -huh. And that has been interesting. Uh -huh. um, and I don't know how I could have done that differently. And both of those people that I can think of are still very pleased with having the support that I provided. And what we did was we ended up going through the series of medications that help with sleep. And ultimately, we still ended up landing on anxiety and treating the anxiety and then it went away but sometimes i think i may have contributed to that by harping on the sleep issue <laughs> have you ever seen that before like have you ever felt like maybe a provider goes too far and makes somebody worry about sleep more than they should well i have a lot of people who are anxious about sleep and then also anxious about anxiety medication you know it's it's but usually like when the anxiety, I mean, I think group is so helpful for that. And our group support, we have um, mixed pregnancy and postpartum groups. So there's all different stages. And I even have a therapy group I've been doing now for about two years 
and some of the people are having their second baby and have stayed in the group that whole time. But it's really helpful to see people who are on, you know, all the different sides of this. Um, but yeah, I have seen that. I mean, because especially if it, it's related to like checking obsessions about, it can be very disturbing and upsetting to try to focus on your sleep when you feel compelled to check on the baby every, you know, five to 10 minutes. Um, mm -hmm. But um, I think sleep is, yeah, it's the key um, to mental health. And yeah. um, with, and, and what I find a lot is that what I was taught about breastfeeding as a midwife um, is now is was not actually right. Um, I mean, I, I usually tell my patients that in my, I mean, they're coming to me for mental health. So we're going to prioritize mental health above breastfeeding. Um, and most people that are in agreement with that, you know, because that's why they're seeing me. Um, and what I usually say is that in order to prevent postpartum depression or anxiety, but even preventing postpartum psychosis is dependent on sleep because the medications are a big piece, but mania, which is what postpartum psychosis often is, is triggered by sleep deprivation. So, um, so I usually tell people like for whatever reason they're seeing me that less than five hours of solid sleep in the first few weeks postpartum but does put you at risk, which. And when you say five hours, do you mean consecutive or over it spread out over 24 hours? How are you using this right now? Solid five hours without being woken up. And Got like it. for someone who has uh, bipolar disorder, it's, it's like a strong recommendation. Like right. six hours would be better. Right. And that will do, that's our best bet to prevent the postpartum psychosis. Um, and so, I mean, that's, and then for most people in that situation, they're feeling like even if they want to breastfeed, they understand that, you know, we got to prioritize uh, the mental health above that. But for depression and anxiety as well, it's very preventative and um, and you can still breastfeed. So that's what I learned in midwifery school, that in those first few weeks, it's so important that you feed on demand and that's how the milk is going to come in and that nipple confusion is a real thing. And they, it is, but... This is just my sample size. Um, it is, but it isn't. I mean, I have in my practice now, <laughs> it's about 500 patients that we have in our practice. And we all pretty much say this because we, we do, we're honest that you may have nipple confusion. You may risk something with breastfeeding, but we're going to put your mental health first. And this is our suggestion. But most of my clients still breastfeed and do fine. I mean, sometimes they need some right. help and sometimes they decide it's not worth the stress of breastfeeding, but the mixed feedings with getting the five hours of sleep, I haven't seen it be a problem and I've seen mm -hmm. just great benefits from that. I totally agree. I'm going to roll it back just to drop because I feel like there are probably people listening who are hearing this like five hour thing and they're going, oh no, I've been doing it all wrong or wait, that wasn't oh, what I was yeah, planning yeah. on doing. Yeah. So I just want to back up and talk about the people that are doing well. People who are doing well, history or not, you're coping. You've got your supports in place and all of that. Uh, I'll tell you what I tell people that I'm curious if you want to tweak that or add to it. But I basically start from a place of trying to get people to get accumulate approximately two hour chunks of sleep because that's the reality for most new parents that are trying to feed on demand, breastfeed on demand. Um, and I try to 
I have them aim for eight hours within the 24, knowing that they probably won't hit it initially, but that's where we're fighting for it. So we're going for maybe two, four two-hour chunks, right? Simple math. If that is not working and I see like an escalation in symptoms, now I shift and I say, we need a four-hour chunk and someone's got to take care of the baby so you can get a four-hour chunk. I wasn't saying five, but I was doing four, four-hour chunks. And then I see if I get improvement out of them with naps around that, but at least one four-hour chunk. And we kind of figure it out because I feel like some people can accumulate sleep and survive, and some people have to have it consecutively to survive. But I don't know who's who. Yeah. So I start in one place, shift to the other if we don't see a difference. And then from there, we start to up the ante and start talking about prioritizing mental health over breastfeeding from there. So that's kind of my trajectory with somebody who starts out normal but isn't coping over time. Yeah. How does that sound? It sounds great. Yeah, I wish somebody had told me that when I had my first. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Don't we all, right? <laughs> I thought when I had my first, I mean, I was a labor and delivery nurse. But I thought... And I don't know how, I'd been a nanny as well. I thought the baby was going to just start sleeping really well at some point, like going from waking up every two hours to like sleeping all night. I thought, when is it gonna happen? Um, And I mean, it does happen with some babies like that. Right. But not with mine. (laughs) And I- And not not all, right? I mean, it's it's, the variation of normal is so huge. And so I talk to people also about, this is all possibly normal behavior. It's most likely normal behavior. It's a question of what you can cope with. How well can you cope under these these circumstances? And that's where my love of pediatric sleep coaches has grown immensely because I used to think that this was like frou-frou science, Mm -hmm. but I now know that when we are trying to help people prioritize their mental health, we can pull out a million different tricks to fix the sleep situation to make sure that we've got that intact so that we know what we're looking at around the edges. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's kind of where I'm coming from on this. Okay, I actually want to back up for one second because we breezed over just just a little bit, but I think it all comes out in the wash. But we breezed over postpartum depression a bit in our our shifting from baby blues um, and postpartum psychosis kind of over into anxiety and talking about how they overlap. But there's one thing that... Look, I don't actually care if somebody calls it straight depression, postpartum depression, perinatal. It's like it's depression. Sometimes I think all of our words confuse everybody more. But but when somebody is depressed in the I'm saying postpartum period, I wonder if you would say in pregnancy as well. There is one symptom that I think is different than what people experience when they're depressed outside of pregnancy and postpartum. And that is rage. And I wondered if you could speak to this feeling of rage that so many new parents can understand having felt, but not ever having understood it in the context of being symptomatic, possibly of depression. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, rage is something that I find in, yeah, is a very common symptom of postpartum depression. Um, And when I said anxiety is more common. I mean, I do see that as the presenting symptom more often, but postpartum depression is extremely common. And thankfully our treatments are getting better and better. Um, But rage to me really signals an overwhelm. So um, it's usually just 
people are, there's too much and there's not enough support. And so I, I find that the group support that we have in my practice, and there's a lot of online group support and postpartum support international who I love um, now. Mm -hmm. has Shout many out. Many amazing specialized groups. Um, and that's such a great place just to be able to get out what it is that the rage is, is surrounding. You know, is it about like, feeling like your partner isn't doing enough? Is it feeling like you just never get any time to yourself? Um, but yeah, it, you're right that it's not a symptom of depression that a lot of people experience um, or may have not experienced. And then also where do they put their rage? Because usually, you know, when people are holding on to anger, I'm asking like, well, where, where can you let it out? And when you have a new baby or a growing family, it's really hard to find that time for like, intensive exercise is a great place to let your anger and rage out or journaling, um, just going out with a friend. But those are things that sometimes we, we just don't have the space and the time for. So making, I mean, I, most people tell me, I mean, group support for when I was looking at your list of things that we were going to talk about and you said, what is the magic bullet? And I'm thinking like, there is no magic bullet, but if there is, it's probably sleep. Um, sleep and group support. Um, that's, that's what I would say. And I wanted to ask Rebecca very specifically, you know, what she feels is the most underutilized therapeutic option for the prevention and treatment of perinatal mood and anxiety disorders. And clearly we have been like sounding the alarm on sleep uh -huh. and Rebecca's been like throwing in this little teaser about groups and I've been like oh I can't wait till she talks about yeah. groups so yes I think everyone got the memo on sleep so now I, I actually I want you to tell us how you got down this path of being so passionate about groups and then tell us a little bit about your groups and why you think they're so effective because I'm I send people to postpartum support international and find them their groups all the time but I've never been in one it's like it's coming from my gut that I believe this is right but I've not had this experience myself right yeah I didn't either I mean I had kind of a a naturally occurring group which I've realized you know during the pandemic times is certainly one of the things that has been lacking and why the online groups have been so important. Um, but we had a naturally occurring group on my block in Brooklyn because the woman at the laundromat connected all the new moms on the block. And she gave us each other's phone numbers and we all started just hanging out in the park together and talking about what were we, what were we uh, worried about, what, what was our rage directed at. Um, but I got interested through Postpartum Support International, um, which is the website's postpartum.net. And I got interested, I was a midwife at a city hospital in, in Brooklyn, and the stigma about mental health was a huge barrier. So there was, there's a whole lot of directions that that went in for me, but I was just thinking, you know, how can we make mental health a welcoming environment? How can we make this something that people want to do? So um, through what I was learning through PSI, um, I decided to start a group in our city hospital. And I was lucky enough to get a grant. Um, and through the grant, because I wasn't a therapist yet, so I didn't lead these groups. I found therapists. So we paid them through the grant, but we also served lunch. And the lunch was actually a really important part because it made it like a social experience. Um, and also people would come early and they would hang out late. And that's something I really miss about, because now I do mostly online groups. I do miss like we would 
people coming in and just hanging out for a little while. And afterwards, it was, it was so great. Um, but what I learned doing those groups at the hospital, um, and I was really the administrator of the groups, but my midwifery patients who were going to the groups, I mean, they just, their moods improved. Like it usually after two groups, people feel better and they often have to complement it with something else as well. But just that feeling of like, I'm not alone. Other people are feeling this. Pregnancy isn't always a happy time. Um, and being with others going through the same thing, almost always the mood improves within two groups. Sometimes the first group people feel more anxious, but I always tell them come back after next week, you won't feel that way. Um, so it also was a, an entryway for people, yeah, to feel like the mental health world doesn't have to be so scary and stigmatizing. Um, and um, it doesn't have a punitive feel to it at all. Um, and it's like, I usually, you know, I start every group talking about this is a space of non-judgment. So no judgment about anything, um, about breastfeeding, about sleep or sleep training or not sleep training, about what you wear, about, you know, anything. Um, and that, so that's very helpful to have a place like that. It can be a starting point. And then people who may, who need more therapy or who could benefit from medications, they hear about that from other group members. So it feels a lot um, also, you know, destigmatizing to talk about medication in that way from other people, not just from your provider telling you about it, but from others who are taking medication. Um, so what we have um, at Brooklyn Parent Support is a Sunday group, Sundays at 4 p.m. that is a free and open group. And that's pretty much the same model when I was at the hospital that it's a drop-in situation. Um, we do some screening because it's not appropriate for everybody to start in a group. I think groups can help everybody, but some people need a different place to start. Um, sometimes like when it's related to birth trauma, it can be too overwhelming to start with group work. Um, so we do some screening and some education, um, but that group is, it's totally non, you don't have to have any commitment. So many people stay in the group for a year or longer, but some people come five times, some people come twice. Um, and, um, and that group has now been running for about three and a half years or so. Um, and then we have, I have a therapy group where people sign up and it's a group of, right now we have seven. And I was saying some people are having their second babies who are within that group. And that's a closed group where the same group of people come every time. And so that's a more in-depth, um, it's really similar to individual therapy, the kind of work that people are doing. Um, and then we also have a Black and Latinx group that is a closed therapy group as well, led by Clarissa and Gabby who work with me. Um, and that group, we received funding from PSI actually. Um, and that's been uh, an amazing group that people, we've just gotten such great feedback about it. And then we also have uh, medication groups, which are um, totally different than our support groups, but um, I'm trying to model it on the centering pregnancy model. So people are coming as a group for their medication management. So they'll have an in individual intake. Um, it's people who are either pregnant or postpartum, but um, 
they're doing pretty well. So we're not going to be making major changes in the group. Um, but it's been really nice because people are talking about their medication with other people who are taking sometimes the exact same medication. Um, and, and we've been really enjoying that. So those are all of our groups. So are your groups, um, I know you said the Sunday group is a free group, but I'm assuming your other groups have a cost associated with them. Do you work with insurance companies to run groups? Tell me about that piece of yeah. it. Um, well, the the Black and Latinx parents group is free um, through the funding of PSI. Um, but um, we also, and then the Sunday, my Sunday 4 p.m. group is just totally free group, but I do bill insurance for group therapy. So we take a lot of insurance, um, not every insurance, but as many as we can. And we do bill insurance for group therapy, which is unusual in a private kind of practice like ours, but has worked really, really well. Um, and then, I mean, we have a, a fee and a sliding scale fee as well for people who um, aren't able to pay the price of the group, which is $50 per group or sliding scale if we don't take the insurance. Um, and the med group, part of the reason we started that is that we don't take every insurance. Um, and so the medication group is for people whose insurance that we don't take, but some people have just decided they like it better. It's just, I, they enjoy it and they find it um, it's very supportive. And so from the consumer perspective, when their insurance, when you accept their insurance and it covers the group, are they paying you their standard copay that they would pay if they were going to one-on-one -on -one therapy? Or is there a different way that this works out? They, yeah, they do have to pay the, the copay for their, um, for their insurance. But for telemedicine, still a lot of the, a lot of the insurers are still waiving the copay. Some of them are waiving the copay. Some of them aren't. Um, but usually the copays are not too bad, but it is, it's the same as like a, a medical visit. So it's often like $20 or $5. Some people is $30. And is your practice hyper local Brooklynites or do you work throughout New York state or beyond given the way telemedicine rules change during COVID? We work with New York state. Um, yeah, all, but it depends on the, you know, if it seems like it would be better for someone to be local then we help find them referrals in their area but in the groups a lot of people are throughout the state and we have a lot of long island people so we are brooklyn parent mm. support but we're we're not hyper local okay got it um so i find it interesting that your you know your silver bullet in terms of group care kind of overlaps with my silver bullet and my silver bullet is community mm -hmm. um and that that is why i think look, maybe I'm wrong and maybe the rates of postpartum anxiety and depression have always been and they were just severely underreported. But I have a feeling that they have amped up over time as we have moved away from our families, started living really solo lives. Nuclear families aren't even structured the way nuclear families once were. Uh, there's just so much pressure in the world to perform, to make a certain amount of money, all of these things, to work hard and work endlessly. And we're all up against that. Um, and in doing so, I think we've really lost our communities. We've lost our villages. And what you're doing with therapy is giving people access to a community, to a village. 
Um, and I just, I find that so beautiful. And I feel like we'll never really know whether it's the therapy or the community or both, but who cares? Because we know that they both have great value and you're doing both at the same time. And I love that that's your model and your framework and you know, where you're putting most of your energy. I think that's so cool. And I really didn't know that until this conversation. Oh. So, I mean, I've seen flyers and ads for your groups, but I did not quite get the extent to with which you were putting most of your eggs in that basket. Yeah. yeah we tried for everybody who's seeing us for medication. We strongly encourage group, but it's not for everybody, but it is for most. Um, and sometimes people say, I'm so, I'm, have too much social anxiety and that's why I don't want to do it, but it's so great for social anxiety because um, you work it out in a safe place where other people are feeling the same thing. But our intake coordinator, who's wonderful, so everyone who calls us speaks to Janaris, who's just, she's lovely and she was a former Head Start teacher before she worked with us. So she's just so used to working with parents. Um, and she just, she sells the group to everybody, you know, and because you can start right away. So if we can't see you for two weeks, people can start group on Sunday and start getting some information. But I also love it. I mean, I love it for uh, how effective it is because I see how much group helps, but I also just really, it's fun for me too. Um, and it's just group therapy works so well. And it's just amazing if you let the group do its thing, it all works because um, that's really, Group therapy is letting the group do the work of therapy and it just happens. You know, I don't have to do all that much. Um, and sometimes people are really, you know, seeking information and wanting advice. But when we go beyond that and just sit with the emotions that are in the group, it's, it's really magical. Super cool. I'm so proud of you and oh. I'm so just thrilled that I've gotten to watch this journey of yours and that you came on my show today. Thank you so much. Um, can you tell everyone how to find you? Everybody needs to be following you on Instagram, if nothing else. Oh, so our website is brooklynparentsupport.com and Instagram is at brooklynparentsupport. All one word, no, oh, no weird little underscores. Underscores, Brooklyn. That's what I thought. <laughs> underscore support. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. I, th I, I didn't have that memorized, but I kind of could picture the underscores. And I was like, I have a feeling there's something else going on there. Anyway, it'll all be in the show notes. So it'll be easier for people to get to anyway. Is there anything else that you feel like we're remiss in not having said in this uh, little primer? Um, no, I think I mean, it's an it's a great introduction. Um, and I mean, I think the piece about medications is it's just so individualized, but there's, um, there's very few medications that I would say, you know, are absolutely not able to be used in pregnancy and lactation. Um, it, so seeking consultation if you're taking medications or did in the past is really, really helpful with someone in perinatal psychiatry. Um, but I also just want to thank you for doing this podcast and doing the work that you're doing because it's just so impressive and amazing. And I'm really glad you're doing this. Thanks, Rebecca. I love that there is a small and growing group of us midwives who are out there doing interesting things and kind of branching out because I don't know how you felt when you decided to do this. I don't think you felt this way, but 
when I decided I was not going to work as a normal, like full scope, full time midwife, I for a little while felt like I wasn't a midwife anymore. And then I had to remember that I'm still a midwife, like I'm just wearing a lot of different hats and trying a lot of different things to get our voices heard. Um, but I, there, there seem to be more and more of us doing interesting things and specializing in interesting things. And I'm looking forward to having all of you on the show. I don't know if everyone can hear this, but there is like a major storm going on. So I'm like, oh, no, are we going to get cut off? Do you hear that yes. thunder? <laughs> it's really coming down. OK, um, so before I lose power, I'm going to say goodbye. Thank you so much, Rebecca. It's me, Tanya, your host here at the Motherwit Podcast. You know I sometimes invite my clients on the show to talk about their birth stories and postpartum experiences, but I want to tell you a little bit more about what those clients and I actually do together. I started Motherwit to help people in the perinatal period achieve their health and wellness goals. That means whether you're hoping to conceive and struggling with high blood pressure or high blood sugar, or you're having trouble managing anxiety or depression in the postpartum period, or maybe you just need support and advocacy between prenatal or postpartum visits, I can help. Get a discount on your first consultation with me at motherwitmaternity.com using the code FIRSTCONSULT10% OFF. That's one zero percent symbol, all one word. I'm looking forward to working with you and maybe having you on the show too.